I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, stocks are staging a bit of a comeback this morning, although lower to end the quarter. Got PayPal, Netflix, Meta, some of the top laggards year to date. We're going to discuss a few areas of opportunity within tech. The SEC has a warning for investors, some new rules to target SPACs. Talk about the impact on the IPO market. And then Baidu falling as it is added to a delisting watch list. What that could mean for the rest of Chinese tech, Deke. Well, Carl, we begin with a key day for the small but growing unionization drive over at Amazon. Two elections, one at an Alabama warehouse, another at a Staten Island warehouse. Those are wrapping up. Workers at the Bessemer, Alabama location voting for the second time on whether to join the RWSDU. Now, this is a do-over after the National Labor Relations Board found that Amazon improperly interfered in that union contest last spring. That one was rejected. The turnout this time, though, it's lower, roughly 39% versus a 55% last spring. Voting, meanwhile, at the Staten Island warehouse finished today. Ballot counting expected to begin this afternoon. There is a third warehouse, guys, in Brooklyn that is expected to vote later this month. So really what began as one small movement in Bessemer has now gained traction. And we have seen unionization efforts gain traction across the country, including several Starbucks cafes. But unlike those smaller stores where some only had a total of 10 workers that were voting, Amazon union organizers, they have to mobilize thousands of workers at each warehouse. And John, the main takeaway here is something we've been talking about for over a year now. These labor pressures are growing. They haven't gone anywhere over at Amazon. And eventually that could threaten that sort of ruthless efficiency that Amazon has built up over the last few decades. Well, we're going to see if they're growing, right, D? I mean, I don't know if they're growing. I mean, the, the turnout, Carl, last time uh, in well, Bessemer was strong, but the, the unions got trounced. And now they're, the, the, the unions have yeah, said, OK, no fair. To three. Yeah. I mean, so, so, yeah, sure, the unions are trying in multiple places. But if they get trounced in the east the way they did in the south, it's not going to look like it's growing so much as it's just not working and they're trying to to bark up the wrong tree here. Now, this isn't about uh, whether the conditions uh, at Amazon and the warehouses need to improve. Amazon itself has admitted that. I think the question, Carl, is whether the workers in mass sort of trust Amazon to do that themselves based on the wages that they've been paying, the benefits they've been giving, or do they want to pay a third party to challenge Amazon and, uh, and change the working conditions perhaps that way, we're going to see. Yeah, uh, we'll see how much of it is about wages per se, uh, about work rules, as Dee points out. But Dee, i got to tell you, if the unionization momentum isn't evidently strong in this particular labor market, it's hard to imagine a better period for a union yeah. to make a move. Yeah, it's true. And remember that Amazon is coming out of the pandemic where there was more work and tougher working conditions. John, you have a really good point. Amazon pays higher than the average employer. It's now the second largest employer in the country. There's a lot of benefits. They were giving these thousand or three thousand dollar signing bonuses. But the key here is trust among those workers. Is Amazon going to improve conditions themselves or do they need sort of a kick in the butt from the unions? I think that's what's at stake here. And yes, we have to note that last time in Alabama, 
The vote overwhelmingly went to non-unionize, but remember that famous mailbox, John? <laughs> Organizers said that it was there to monitor votes. Amazon said that it was out of convenience, so it's hard to read through, through those results. This is expected really? to be a I less controversial election. I mean, you, you lose uh, a, a union vote, you know, 70% in, in Alabama. I don't know. You're going to blame a mailbox? I don't, I don't buy that. That doesn't, that doesn't hold any water with me. But they soldier on, and, uh, we'll and, and labor deserves for its voice to be heard. We'll see what they decide. Sticking with big tech and its influence, a trade association that says it supports small business and advocates against antitrust and regulations, apparently it's actually backed by two of the biggest tech companies on the planet. Eamon Jabbers has that. Eamon. Good morning, John. That's right. A non- Washington, D.C. nonprofit group called the Connected Commerce Council, or 3C, describes itself as a membership organization that advocates on behalf of small business on technology issues. And until recently, that group had a list of those members on its website. But when CNBC called the small businesses that were listed there, more than 20 of them told us they weren't actually members or they had never heard of the group. Some members we talked to said they are active participants of the group. Now, critics say the council is an astroturf lobbying group. That's a bit of Washington slang for a group that claims to represent grassroots entities, but in reality serves as as an advocate for big industry. In fact, the Connected Commerce Council is financed by Google and Amazon and advocates against antitrust legislation on Capitol Hill and in a Facebook advertising campaign. Amazon and Google are listed as partners on the 3C website. Now, until Monday, the group also listed a third company on its website as a partner. That's the payments processor Square, which is now known as Block. But when we called them to ask why they're partners with the council, they said they're not partners with the council. After our inquiry, Block called the council to ask that the Square logo be removed from its website, which it was on Monday. Now, in a statement, the council's executive director said all of its members affirmatively sign up at events online or through a personal connection. And he said small businesses have legitimate concerns. He denied that the group is an astroturf organization. Now, to be sure, the group does have some small business members who told us they're happy with the council and they agree with its advocacy on antitrust issues. The group has thrown happy hours for members and offers training on technology tools. In a statement, Google said, we encourage concerned businesses and the organizations that represent them to ask Congress to consider the unintended consequences of these bills for small businesses across the country. An Amazon official confirmed that the company is a partner of the council. Neither company would say how much money, if any, it contributed to the group. Back over to you, John. Eamon, is this a new turn in tech's lobbying tactics that we're seeing here? We were just talking about Facebook and a firm, uh, you know, Meta, Facebook and a firm that it was working with to point out what they see as the problems with TikTok arrival and now this. Or is this just coming to light and it's a pretty standard Washington fair that perhaps we hadn't been hearing about before? Well, this group in question goes back a couple of years and has been active for a while. But I think what you're looking at here are standard Washington techniques uh, that are being adapted by the technology industry. And some of the question uh, is why. And, and 
Well, the answer to that is that there's a lot at stake on Capitol Hill. Other industries have done similar things in the past. You know, the sort of the mom and pop shops are good politics up on Capitol Hill. Everybody wants to meet with them. They have charming stories. Uh, there was a, we talked to a blacksmith who was listed as a member of this group. Uh, he makes a, a, a grilling tools. He also has a spice and a sauce that's called Bite My Butt. I mean, it's a fun business, right? And people want to be associated with that. It, it's got a lot of color and, and flavor. Um, although I haven't tried the bite my butt sauce <laughs> yet. Um, so, so politicians like that, right? And, and the big companies know that uh, by advocating alongside those folks, you know, they get a lot of warm and fuzzies up on Capitol Hill. That's an old standard technique. And the reason I think it's being deployed here is because, uh, you know, there's a lot at stake for these tech companies up on Capitol Hill, particularly with these bills that might break up some of these companies. We're going to need a whole segment, Amen, on uh, what is it? Hot sauce? Bite my butt? Is that what you're talking about? It, that's um, right. My yep. question. Okay. My question, though, um, if this is standard practice in Washington, Amen, simple question here. Does it work? Is there any precedent or is this era somehow different? Well, I mean, so I think it does work. I think it's pretty effective, uh, especially on, on Facebook. You see a lot of what's going on here is not necessarily lobbying uh, directly up to Capitol Hill. It's advocacy with groups out there in the public, right? And so what you're trying to do is drive a message. And on Facebook, you can do that. And it's fascinating to watch it happen in real time. You can look at Facebook's ad tracker and track the ads of this group and others like it. And you can see the marketing campaign that they're engaging in, uh, telling small businesses that if some of these bills pass and Amazon is impacted in any way, that could hurt their small business. And they're saying, why don't you sign up with us, fill out this form, send a letter to your congressman, that sort of thing. So you're engaging with small businesses and sending that messaging up to Capitol Hill. That can be effective. That said, you know, people on Capitol Hill are pretty savvy and they've seen all of this stuff before. Uh, still, when you get a lot of letters inbound from small businesses telling you to lay off of a particular bill, if you're a congressman, you're going to want to pay attention to that. Yeah, uh, that is a first, uh, free, uh, Eamon, uh, a good perspective on how things work on the Hill. That's our Eamon Javers. Thanks. Uh, sticking with some tech names this morning, what went up has come down. PayPal, Netflix, Meta, all falling more than 30 percent for the year so far, leading the Nasdaq lower despite the recent bounce. Our next guest believes, though, we're finally leveling out from a COVID rally. Joining us this morning, GGV Capital's uh, Jeff Richards. Jeff, welcome back. Good to see you. Good morning. It's hard to follow the bite my butt segment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try. Um, you've made the point and you've been you've been articulate about it, uh, that there's a there's a level at which long duration names uh, get cheap enough or people stop making fun of them. Well, as you guys know, I'm a I'm a homer for long duration. Uh, for us, that's software companies in particular and cloud names that have a very long opportunity to go after giant markets. And I think what you've seen over the last few weeks, you saw you know, some of the what we would call blue chip companies like Snowflake bounced up 38 percent from its bottom, CrowdStrike up 37 percent from its bottom. You know, I can't I'm not a market timer. I can't really tell you what the rest of the year looks like. We could have a recession, as, as has been well documented. But it certainly feels like investors have seen a little bit of a floor around these names. And then you have very smart folks like Toma Bravo coming in and buying a, a great software company like Anaplan at over 13 times forward revenue. And I think that was a strong signal to the market that there is a floor where folks will come in and buy these companies if they get too cheap. 
Do you think that there, you think, like, for example, I'm thinking of a call today out of the sell side about Dell and HPQ. I mean, they worry about consumer, but they also worry about IT hardware budgets over the long term because of the uncertainties you mentioned. I mean, how do you process those? It's not an, it's not an irrelevant concern, right? No, and I would be worried about IT hardware as well. I mean, the world is moving to software and moving to cloud. So uh, I think, you know, you had uh, Dave McJanet from HashiCorp on yesterday. We're a large shareholder in HashiCorp and big believers in what they're trying to do. If you think about the movement to the cloud that large Fortune 1000 companies are making, these are five to 10-year moves. These are multi-year budgets that get set in place, and rarely are they pulled back because they're transforming their entire business around the world. Firms like Accenture, Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse have literally been hiring thousands of people every month to meet the demand of large enterprises that are buying this technology and deploying it. And I think that's why you see investors really viewing these as safe bets over the next five to 10 years, while we see market volatility that's really hard to forecast in other sectors like consumer, as you point out. Jeff, good morning. It's Deirdre. I wanted to ask you about the latest proposed uh, SPAC regulations from the SEC. It would essentially force SPACs to meet similar standards as traditional IPOs. And I wonder, do you think that this is good or bad for the retail investor? I mean, projections in the majority of SPACs we know have fallen short, but it's also a way for the average investor to get into some of the companies that you get into at a much earlier stage, that is. Yeah, I've been pretty clear on Twitter uh, in general, uh, not a huge fan of the SPAC movement. I think it brought a lot of companies public that should not have been public. They weren't quite ready to be public. Having said that, the top 10, 15% of SPACs, there are some that have done very well, terrific companies that could could have done a traditional IPO. I think the forecasting issue is one that you've highlighted many times and is an important one. When a company goes through a traditional IPO, they can't really give uh, a forward-looking forecast. They, they work with analysts uh, to kind of set expectations a little bit, but for the most part, uh, they're not able to do the, the forecast that the SPAC uh, companies were able to do. So I think it's a little bit of a it was a little bit of a gray area or a loophole, and hopefully the SEC will close that and we'll have a more efficient process. We're all for more companies being public. We think that's a great trend. Obviously, post Sarbanes-Oxley and more regulation, you saw fewer companies go public. We'd love to see that trend uh, continue with more companies going public. And obviously, 20 and 21 were, were record years for IPOs. Obviously, a lot of those companies have traded down, but we think there are some phenomenal buying opportunities in the classes of 20 and 21, uh, particularly for folks who want to do their work and, and have a five to 10-year outlook. Jeff, square something for me that, you know, in my mind, doesn't make sense. I hear this argument that we've largely bottomed on uh, the smaller software names on growth stocks. And yet we're talking about this revaluation. You say Instacart was smart to get ahead of it. it. It doesn't seem like it's done yet. This seems more like a canary in a coal mine moment than the dust settling. Doesn't there have to be a revaluation in the private markets, perhaps with IPOs and that perhaps ripples through other software stocks and tech stocks in general before we can say that we've really bottomed? Yeah, 100%, John. I agree with you. Um, We usually see a six to nine month lag in the private markets. It takes a while for private company CEOs and boards to kind of digest what they're seeing in the public market. We're seeing that now. I think what, uh, what the team at Instacart did was very smart. I you know, was very public in saying, I wish private companies would follow their lead. And just acknowledge if your public comp is down 50, 60, 75%, it's irrational to think that a private company valuation hasn't come down a little bit, whether it's 10, 20, or 50%. It just doesn't make any sense that we would say public market, uh, com- public companies can go up and down, but private companies can, can only go up. It just, it's an irrational way of thinking. And I think what we're seeing is the, the, the you know, particularly repeat founders and those who 
are sitting on large balance sheets and have the confidence to say to their teams, hey, look, the market shifted. We're going to shift the valuation. In many cases, we're going to issue you new stock at a lower valuation and give you an opportunity to share in the upside from here. So I agree with you 100 percent, John. That's interesting. Uh, you know, and to that point, Jeff, uh, Q1 IPOs, you know, we, we did under 100. Uh, we haven't been that low since Q2 of 2020. What does that say about private money's expectation of when the IPO window opens up once again? Well, I think you'll see, you know, we always like to say strong companies can go public in any market. The big asterisk there is at what price. And so what you tend to see is it takes a while for companies to digest this new valuation environment. Obviously, they're working with their bankers to kind of gauge interest level. Um, but you know, for long duration companies, the IPO is another fundraising event. And I think what you'll see is you know, in Q2, in Q3, you'll start to see some of the better, stronger companies that have really strong business models, good free cash flow margins, good gross margins, and really high growth rates test the waters. It may be at valuations that uh, you know, the last round investors don't find as attractive. But let's not forget, we had companies like Square. Square Square went public at a valuation that was lower than its last private round and then traded up and was a 10 to 15x return from there. So it's it's not a death knell for companies to go public at below their last round valuation. Uh, It's healthy in many cases. It's another fundraising event. And it's just another data point in in a long journey for companies that are going to be around for a very long time and go on to take advantage of these massive opportunities like cloud, like fintech uh, and some of these other great categories. That's some great insight on on a number of things we're going to be talking about in Q2 as well. Thanks, Jeff. See you soon. Thank you. And Carl, as we're talking about valuation re-ratings in the private market, we're getting word that GoPuff, which is a company that we've covered in the quick commerce space, is planning hundreds of layoffs in a bid to cut $40 million in costs. We are expected to get the internal memo, which we will share, plus more details. But again, another example of the sell-off in public markets affecting the private markets. Still to come on Tech Check, Apple's giant opportunity in payments, a downgrade for AMD, and Reid Hoffman's backing an EV company. Tech Check is just getting started. Get a gut check on AMD. Barclays pumping the brakes on the semiconductor growth story there, downgrading the stock to equal weight. Still sees AMD as a share gainer, but sees growth lagging as demand settles back down to normal levels. They also note the street has yet to reflect AMD's recent acquisition of California semi-manufacturer Xilinx, a deal that Barclays believes is dilutive, though helping AMD diversify over the long term. They cut their target from 148 down to 115 and shares a few dollars below that right now, D. We're getting some news on President Biden's plan to tap the U.S. oil reserves. Let's get to Kayla Tausche in Washington for more. Kayla. Well, Deirdre, the White House announcing that the U.S. alone will be releasing one million barrels of oil per day from emergency reserves, a release that will last uh, as long as six months, according to announcement that happened today. A senior administration official says that the U.S. will be restocking its emergency reserves when prices are lower and that there will be a meeting of the International Energy Agency uh, tomorrow uh, for other allies to discuss taking similar moves and that their uh, uh, policy 
policy processes are not finished, but that there will be more than one million barrels coming onto the global market per day as well once some of those announcements are completed. Additionally, this afternoon, President Biden is going to be calling on Congress to levy a fee on oil and gas companies that are not producing on lands or leases that they have already obtained. A senior administration official saying that there should be consequences for companies that are not undergoing that activity for which they have already been approved. President Biden is also going to be announcing that he will use the Defense Production Act to compel companies to produce critical minerals here uh, as the country and the administration seeks to expedite uh, the move toward clean energy alternatives. That speech happening at 1.30. John, we'll be covering it all here on CNBC. Back to you. And we will look to you to keep us updated with these continuing ripples from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thank you, Kayla. And speaking of cybersecurity, also top of mind in this issue, uh, NATO and Eastern European militaries now the latest targets of Russian hackers, according to Google's threat analysis group. And cybersecurity firm Sentinel One out with a new report that says there are critical vulnerabilities in Microsoft Azure, threatens uh, critical infrastructure across the U.S. that relies on those products and ones like it. Here to discuss Sentinel One co-founder and CEO Tomer Weingarten. Uh, Tomer, good to see you. Now tell me, what is the nature of the vulnerability that you're discussing here, and how has Microsoft done at responding to it? Yeah, uh, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So um, it really is one of the most critical elements in, in IoT defense and in critical infrastructure. This is a piece of software that is being used in many um, you know, of, of the most critical assets, protecting most of the critical assets that we know about. And it's a complete um, what we call a remote code execution type of vulnerability, which means that an attacker with no uh, prior access to the network can actually execute malicious code and compromise a lot of these devices. Um, it's rated 10. It's incredibly severe. And you can imagine that um, when we talk about, you know, this this cyber chaos that's happening right now, critical infrastructure, electric grids, I mean, all of these assets that are, you know, essential to our way of life, um, they're kind of at stake. And especially when you see these vulnerabilities and coming from a vendor that I think is heavily trusted uh, by the U.S. government like Microsoft, it, it raises questions. So we're talking about it now, which often means it was discovered a while ago. Hopefully some remediation has been done. What's the current status of this vulnerability uh, for one, and then what does it tell us about what additional methods and safeguards uh, and checks might need to be taken to make sure there aren't more? Yeah, I think it's, you know, maybe important to kind of uh, describe the, the grand, you know, kind of the grand uh, view of what vulnerabilities are and, and kind of how they're being addressed. Uh, this one took about six months to patch. It's already patched right now. But then um, these uh, devices that are running these types of software, um, they got to be updated and that takes even further time. Um, so that always, you know, leaves that gap for attackers to try and exploit these vulnerabilities. Um, I think, you know, we're seeing about a thousand new vulnerabilities patched by Microsoft alone every year. And, and if you can kind of think about it, um, Microsoft runs, you know, a good chunk of the world's infrastructure. Um, so seeing these vulnerabilities time and time again, again, it just begs the question, should Microsoft be focused more on product security versus on security products? Tomer, Sirtra, in terms of a broader, more concerted or at least expected attack from Russia amid the war, Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince earlier this week said that one of the biggest surprises of the last few weeks is that we haven't actually seen one. Do you think that this is the quiet before the storm or did we perhaps overestimate uh, their cyber hacking uh, capabilities? 
It's it's a good question and it's hard to tell. Um, I think that, you know, all in all, I think both governments understand that cyber weapons today are kind of the last resort. And it's almost like a Cold War dynamic that, that we're seeing, um, in my view. That said, I think, you know, even through to, to today's morning, I mean, when you look at some of the attacks that the Russians have waged against Viasat, they actually bleed out of just the Ukraine and they actually affect more and more NATO countries. Um, is that deliberate? Probably not, but it's happening and it's concerning. Although, Tomer, there's been some written about Microsoft, specifically their work in Ukraine, uh, as they're trying to fight back the, the rain, of course, of uh, potential attacks. But in many cases, they're able to offer fresh code within a few hours. I mean, is that a, is that a good way to look at the, our ability to, to hold back uh, the flood? I think what uh, Microsoft can do today, which is obviously much better than the status quo about five years ago, is really deploy new signatures and block attacks that are malware-based. But if you look at some of the newer vectors of attacks, and obviously, you know, uh, some of the hacks that we've seen on the news, including the Okta hack, which obviously have far-reaching effects, they actually started with user compromise that is um, gunning, you know, specifically towards Active Directory, which is another Microsoft component, which houses all of the permissions, all the privileges for all users in the organization. And that has nothing to do with malware. It has nothing to do specifically with security software. It has to do with the Active Directory user identity structure, that forest that holds all of our identity and permissioning. Um, that also is something that is incredibly vulnerable um, and something that we're trying to address as well. All right. Uh, we appreciate the perspective. Tomer Weingarten uh, from Sentinel One. Thank you. After the break, Apple's push further into payments, what it could mean for other fintech stocks. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. Coming up this half hour, HP and Dell, both down on that downgrade from Morgan Stanley. Plus, we'll break down Apple's future in financial services. And we're going to watch the NYSE FANG Plus Index falling more than 1% today. Netflix, the biggest laggard on this final day of Q1. First, though, a news update with Morgan Brennan. Hey, Morgan. Hi, Carl. Good to see you again. Here is what is happening at this hour. President Biden has ordered the release of a million barrels of oil per day from America's strategic reserves. The releases will last six months. This is in an effort to help curb soaring gas prices. Crude prices sank in anticipation of the announcement. West Texas Intermediate is now down about 4%. The inflation gauge that's closely watched by the Federal Reserve has hit a fresh 40-year high. The PCE index jumped 6.4% over the last year. During February, personal income rose half a percent, but spending edged up just two-tenths of a percent as food and gas prices continued to surge. Jobless claims edged up in the latest week to 202,000. There's still near 52-year lows, though. Continuing claims continued their fall, now at their lowest level since December of 1969. And Walgreens Boots Alliance sinking 6% today. Investors paying little attention to strong quarterly profits, instead focusing on full-year earnings guidance, which remains unchanged. The drugstore giant says the cautious forecast is due to investments in its Walgreens health unit. John, back to you. Morgan, thanks. Now, you might already use Apple Pay or Apple Card, but could payment processing, fraud analysis, even credit checks, soon be joining Apple's fintech portfolio? 
On Bloomberg Report, suggests the company is looking to cut out the middleman, bring more financial products under one roof. There are also rumblings that Apple plans a buy-now-pay-later service, rivaling the likes of a firm. The street's bullish on the idea of an Apple push into the space. Evercore recently projected Apple could add $11 billion in sales by expanding into buy-now-pay-later and processing options. Carl, uh, it seems like reducing friction in commerce, and Apple is known both in physical retail and in the app store for having uh, a loyal customer that spends more and spends often, you know, perhaps they can capture more share of wallet by digitizing that process. At least that's what some are hoping. Yeah, kind of remarkable, D, to watch. I mean, you bundle it all together, uh, and the, the very slow but steady evolution of Apple that's becoming more self-reliant on chips, yeah. more self-reliant on uh, content, and perhaps on the payments and fintech, too. Yeah, part of that services equation, it's not just Apple. You have Amazon pushing into this space, and you could argue the big tech is you know, best position to take away some of the friction. I think the question, guys, has always been, do they want to do that? Do they want to sort of pop their heads up and get into the banking regulator's crosshairs? I think that's a big question, not if they can, but whether they want to, Carl. Uh, we'll watch it. Obviously, that win streak uh, was broken uh, at 11. Didn't quite make it to 12, uh, but we'll continue to watch for $3 trillion market cap at 183.83. Uh, still to come this morning are crypto exchanges investable. Why our next guest says Coinbase is kind of like Schwab. The Nasdaq and Goldman all wrapped into one. We're back after this. think that as competition increases in crypto, and this is not a call on, on crypto or Bitcoin prices or anything like that, uh, but we think as, as competition increases amongst the exchanges, you're going to see fee compression. And uh, as it is, uh, uh, Coinbase will probably not be profitable this year with a, a, a $40 billion market cap. That was Jim Chanos unveiling a new short against Coinbase earlier this month on Closing Bell Overtime, calling it a bubble stock that is being sold on a story. Guys, we're going to talk to someone about this next, but we chatted this ourselves uh, last week. And it's not a call in crypto, as he says. We've seen so many more institutional investors come to the side, believe that crypto is going to be a major trend, a major investment area, asset class in the future. But what he takes issue with are some of the companies that perhaps may be washed out. John, if we are in this sort of 90s moment of seeing so many companies, so many funds pouring money into crypto, but consolidation down the road. You know, I can't help but keep using the musical chairs metaphor because markets eventually seem to feel that way, right? The music stops. There's a chair gone. Everybody rushes to sit down. Somebody ends up with their butt on the floor, Carl. And you wonder at some point whether it's kind of temporary or longer term, that's going to happen in these crypto markets. And so how does that affect things, right? This volatility that we've seen up to this point, D, is is, if it's it's what's helping the Coinbase and the likes of them to make money, well, fine. But then if it goes away, right, do do they suffer in a couple of different ways? And that's what Chano seems to be betting on. 
Yeah, and many proponents of the space, I would argue that that is like the internet in the 90s. Let's get another take on this. Joining us now, Electric Capital co-founder and managing partner, Avital Garg, which recently raised a new billion-dollar fund specifically to invest in crypto projects. Avital, great to have you. Now, it's not just fees like Chainos talked about that these exchanges are earning. They're also earning a spread because there isn't yet a lot of transparency or efficiency in the markets. Uh, Finance's CEO called this a hidden fee. Do you allow that that could narrow over time and eat into the profitability of a Coinbase? I think it could over time. I think it will take a long time for that to happen. I mean, we've been talking about fee compression since 2016, 2017, and it just hasn't happened yet. And I think it's because when people are buying into an asset they think might go up 1,000%, they're not really thinking about whether whether an exchange is charging them 1% or 2% or what those spreads look like. I think it's, it's just the motivations here are so different given the volatility. Right. But as we see crypto become mainstream, do you think that there's more people buying Ether and Bitcoin or do you think that there's more people buying some of these altcoins? Um, you know, I think it's going to be a mix. I think if you look at the revenue, when you, when you look at kind of where the revenue comes from from these exchanges, you know, it's, it's the percentage of revenue uh, from Bitcoin and ETH has gone down over time and it's, it's moved into some of these other assets. And again, I think it's because people are really looking for these outsized returns. Uh, and so it makes sense that, that they would be thinking about, um, you know, trying, trying the altcoins. I think the other thing that's going to change the dynamic here a little bit looking into the future is as DeFi and staking and some of these other opportunities start to come online through the exchanges, um, it creates a yield generation opportunity. And so I think that may actually create some, some um, mix shift a little bit. So I think it might move people away a little bit from Bitcoin and moves people towards ETH where you can generate staking returns and participate in DeFi. And so as these other ecosystems start to generate more yield generation opportunities, I think it'll be interesting to see how the, how the, how the buying patterns change for users. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, we're in such an inflationary environment, but over the years, there's been outright deflation in financial services. We've watched it happen in equity trading as commissions went to zero. Why would, why would fee structure get bigger over time uh, when it came to crypto? Well, I, I think there's two things at play. One is the volatility means that users are just thinking about these things really differently. Uh, and I think, too, when you look at the structure of these businesses, it's really different from traditional finance. So I think you know, when people pattern match back to brokerages or traditional finance, um, there are regulatory reasons that, that you sort of separate out the custodian from the brokerage from the exchange. And in crypto, you don't have those constraints. And so, you know, you, you sort of have to think about Coinbase or Kraken as a business that's sort of, you know, it's Schwab uh, plus a custodian like BNY Mellon, plus the NASDAQ, plus Goldman Sachs, plus an OTC desk. Um, and some of these businesses have, you know, their own jump capital or Citadel baked in. So that, that consortium, that, that collection of businesses together, um, I think has, has a real moat and has potentially, you know, significantly more pricing power than, than if you were to take one of those businesses just as a standalone. Um, and so these crypto businesses, I think you have to, you have to look at very differently from TradFi businesses. You do have to look at it very differently, Abishal. So I wonder, what do you think that the public most misunderstands about crypto? Uh, there's so many things. Uh, you know, with, with respect to these businesses, I think it is this sort of, you know, this, this bundling that you have. And, you know, there's that old quote, you know, there's two ways to make money, bundling and unbundling. And I think in a, in a lot of these crypto businesses, you actually have bundling in a new way. And that bundling is going to create new sorts of moats. And those moats actually give you pricing power and defensibility in your margins in a way that I think a lot of TradFi businesses haven't been able to have. Um, you know, if you want to talk more generally about misunderstanding crypto, I think, you know, we're still very, very early days in terms of most people really understanding this stuff. And so, which is, which is another reason I think when you look at these margins of revenue on, on some of these businesses, um, you know, I think uh, most of the money in the world just hasn't even come up here yet. 
Yeah, we probably need a longer interview for that. But lastly, Avishal, I do want to ask you about some news this week, and that is the Axie Infinity $650 million, $15 million hack. This looked like a classical phishing attack, and that's a traditional security issue that shouldn't exist on a decentralized platform. So what does it say about Axie? What does it say about some of the most, quote-unquote, promising Web3 companies and the challenge of actual decentralization? Yeah, it's a really good point. You know, most of these systems, when you start looking into them, you, you most um, most of them are not that decentralized yet. You know, it's, it's, people are, are sort of advocating for progressive decentralization. And I think decentralization, as we saw, I think, with Russia and Ukraine, it's one of these things that it doesn't matter until it really does. Um, and it, it really speaks to, I think, how risky some of these assets are and why people really need to do their research before before committing. I think it also speaks to why we've we've been able to uh, you know, have success as venture investors. Um, you know, our, our whole team is, is engineers. And so a lot of where we spend our time is actually assessing, um, you know, how decentralized are these things? You know, what are the technical risks involved? Um, and a lot of these hidden risks are tail risks. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what you see is it's, it just doesn't matter until it does. And then it really does. Yeah. And sometimes it may be too late. Uh, Avishal, thank you. Great insights. Hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. You also want to note, uh, be sure to check out Crypto World. That's CNBC's digital show on all things crypto. Head to cnbc.com slash crypto world. After the break, Julia Borston is going to bring us some Instagram news. We will have that in just a moment. But uh, first, check out shares of UiPath getting crushed down almost 24% despite EPS and revenue beats in Q1. Guidance, you guessed it, management saying geopolitical uncertainty could lead to a slowdown in growth. Don't go away. We're back in two. Some news from inside Instagram. Julia Borston has a scoop this morning. Hi, Julia. Well, Carl, Meta is announcing just this morning some new features to help Instagram shore up its defenses against TikTok and Snap as Meta works to prevent Instagram from seeing a decline in users as Facebook did as it reported last quarter. Now, Instagram will allow users to attach 30 seconds of a song to a direct message, a DM, through an integration with Apple Music and Amazon Music. The Spotify integration is coming. They're also launching a feature so users can reply to a message without leaving their Instagram feed. Another feature will allow people to quickly reshare posts to their closest four friends. There's also the ability to see who's online to chat and to quickly create polls. Now, these features are designed to prompt more messaging with close friends. It's a move to rival Snap, which is very much focused on friend interactions. Instagram also aims to keep people on the app so they don't swipe over to rival TikTok. These new features come as two analysts weigh in this morning on Meta's ad prospects. Jeffrey's noting that TikTok is growing fast but is still less than 1% of ad budgets. That means more room for it to take market share. Jeffrey's also warns about advertising headwinds from supply chain disruptions, rising gas prices and inflation, But they say that the worst of those Apple iOS impacts are behind Meta. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley is saying it sees online ad spending levels and growth back at pre-pandemic levels, but warns that Google's search for the first time surpassed Facebook as having the highest perceived return on investment for small and medium-sized businesses. So when it comes to fighting for ad market share, particularly if there's a shrinking pie, there's even more pressure for Meta to drive usage. And that is what today's Instagram announcements are all about. Guys? 
Keyword, Julia, chasing. It feels like everything Meta is doing these days is playing catch up, at least when it comes to the social media side. Julia, thank you. As we head to break, check out shares of Dell and HP Inc. this morning. Morgan Stanley downgrading both to equal weight. To read more about the call, head on over to CNBC.com. More tech check and a story on EVs after this break. Welcome back. We have been following the growth in electric vehicles. How about the growth of EV financing? A company backed by Reed Hoffman is targeting rideshare and last-mile delivery drivers. And it has a new model. Phil LeBeau has that story. Phil? Hey, John, it's an interesting model. Spring Free EV is a startup that is targeting gig economy workers. We're talking about ride hail drivers, those who are uh, involved with making last-mile deliveries, looking for a more economical option than filling up their car with gasoline. So what they're doing is they're offering three-year EV leases. And depending on the EV that you choose to lease, and let's say you sign up for 12,000 or 15,000 miles, whatever it might be, you're going to pay by the mile, approximately 31 cents per mile. Could be a penny or two, more or less, depending on the model that you ultimately are leasing. And again, they're targeting ride hail and last mile delivery drivers. Now, Spring Free EV says a perfect example of the type of vehicle that somebody could lease uh, and pay 31 cents a mile per month, which would be much more economical, is the Nissan Leaf, the type of low-cost EV that they believe is going to be in demand with this uh, business setup. They're going to be leasing up to 2000 EV starting in the fall of this year. And the CEO believes with gas prices at this level, there will be strong demand. High gas prices are, uh, they may not stay so insanely high like they are right now, but we're never going back to really cheap gas. And that's kind of from a pure economic standpoint, that that world has, has changed forever. Well, it's certainly changed for the near term. Take a look at retail gas prices. They're trading uh, or it's selling right now for about 10 cents less than the record high, guys. And the expectation is that we will see high gas prices at least for the next several months. Let's see what happens a little bit later on this year. But this is an interesting concept saying to gig workers, look, if you are a ride hail operator and you want a more economical approach to your business, we can lease you an EV and you're only paying 31 cents per mile and you will be able to spend less. You won't have to spend it on fuel, and it will, in the end, be more economical for you. Phil, why are they targeting ride-hail drivers? Is it because you need to be driving a certain number of miles per day, per week, in order for the math to work out? I mean, there are some drivers who don't do it that often. Um, so so who, who really, right. even within that cohort, is the target? Well, I, it depends. The, look, the more you drive, the more economical it's going to be. Uh, and when we talked with Sunil Paul, he basically said, at these prices, if you are a last-mile delivery driver, let's say you're doing Instacart or whatever firm you're working for, you're getting hammered uh, with, with the fuel costs that are out there. And his belief is that there are enough people who want to continue doing what they're doing, but they're looking for a more economical approach, and they want to do an EV, and that's why they, they believe that there will be demand here. And I bet the gig economy uh, companies would welcome this as well, because right now they're giving these fuel surcharges in the case of Uber coming out of their, or in some cases, coming out of their own pockets. Sure. Phil, thank you so much. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. 
story in the journal just crossing now. Four senators have written a letter urging the FTC to review that Microsoft proposed deal to buy Activision. It's Senator Sanders, Warren, Booker and White House pointing to the accusations of sexual abuse and harassment within the company and whether a buyout would allow Activision to escape accountability as part of a much larger company. The senators also said any exit package that CEO Bobby Kotick would receive as part of the deal should be looked at. John, uh, when we've got the initial uh, bid and announcement and the timeline, uh, maybe it was to uh, take into account potential complications like this. Yeah, and if I'm understanding it correctly, and we'll have to look more closely at this, their concern from the Senate seems to be mostly about Bobby Kotick and the payday that he would walk away with if this deal go, goes through and the fact that he would stick around as we wait to see if this deal goes through. So um, very much about that one man, Carl. And, uh, he's not sticking around. Well, um, to, to what degree, we'll see. Uh, guys, and on top of all the news this week and quarter end, jobs number tomorrow. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.